Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today during your day of Pentecost, your Feast of Weeks. We pray that what we do during this time may be honoring to you. We pray that we would learn the lessons, that we would, that we would strive ever more to devote our lives to you, to become, to become better disciples of yours and of your son, Yahshua. Father, we thank you for all the wonderful things you have given us. We pray that we would be appreciative of all that you've done. We also pray, Father, for those who may not be here today, including Brother Paul and Sister Kathy, that you would be with them and all those struggling and suffering today. And we thank you for those who are able to join us remotely and, and those who came from afar to be here. And we thank you for all this in the name of your son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is certainly a blessing to see everybody here today and to see those um, who traveled from California and other parts to uh, join us during this short weekend, but certainly a very special weekend as I'm going to review in this message. Well, today I want to speak about, as you might have guessed, the uh, Feast of Weeks, also known as uh, Pentecost or Shaviot. For those who may not know, Pentecost is from the Greek, means 50, and uh, Shaviot is from the Hebrew, meaning weeks. Both of these names refer to how this day is counted from a scriptural standpoint. We'll, we'll look at that. We'll better understand how this day is counted in just a few moments. Now, as we'll see from the word, this day is again very special, not only because it's one of the three pilgrimage feasts, but also because of what it represents both historically and prophetically. In fact, this, this is uh, something we find with all of Yahweh's feast days, this historic and prophetic connection. Here's an example I want to share as we uh, begin today this chart. Well, let's see here. Okay. So here's a chart. This is um, a revised chart that you'll see in the fourth edition of the Restoration Study Bible, but it's some changes here. So days of worship, Old Testament meaning and New Testament fulfillment. I'm going to quickly go through these. Some of you are still a little bit new to the feast days. And for those who have been keeping it for some time, you know that these days are so important to Yahweh, so important to the Word, and uh, they, they are just rich with meaning. It's kind of hard to read. I do apologize for that. I'm going to read through this. So uh, Passover, the Old Testament meaning, of course, is the death of Egypt's firstborn. I think we can also maybe say the redemption of Israel because that night they were redeemed through that process. New Testament fulfillment, well, that was Yahweh's firstborn, the death of the Messiah. He died on that day, that evening. Feast of Unleavened Bread, most of us, many of us observe that just you know, about 50 days ago. And uh, this commemorates a barley harvest and also the wave sheath that was offered on this day. Prophetically, it pointed to the Messiah's resurrection. So again, Passover represented his death. Oliver Bread then represented his resurrection. It was during that feast that he was resurrected unto eternal life. Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Shaviot, here we are. Weed harvest and the giving of the law. And we'll see that as we go through this message. And, of course, as we'll see in Acts chapter 2, it also represents prophetically the outpouring of Yahweh's Holy Spirit. Feast of uh, Trumpets, this uh, first feast in the seventh month. 
We uh, know scripturally that it was used for the calling together of Israel. You know, not much is given historically about this day. We, we really don't know what the historic significance is in, in great detail, but it's certainly an important day. And maybe, you know, I believe that it, the, the emphasis is on what it represents prophetically. Because prophetically, from everything I see, it represents the return of Yahshua the Messiah. So it's a very important feast from a prophetic standpoint. Day of Atonement, of course, that's the day that Israel's sins were cleansed and removed from the camp. And we believe that it's also a cleansing of Yahweh's people in the millennium. I plan to speak about that, this atonement, Yom Kippur, really fascinating for me and the connection there. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles, this is a gathering of the general harvest. And of course, from a prophetic standpoint, this refers to the millennial kingdom on earth, the 1,000-year kingdom on earth. So the last one here, some people don't realize the last great day is technically a separate feast. And, of course, this marked a conclusion to Yahweh's annual feast from a historic standpoint. But from a prophetic standpoint, it also represents something special, and that is the great white throne judgment and the ending of an era. Because we know that after the great white throne judgment, that new Jerusalem will come to earth and that Yahweh himself will dwell on this earth with his called and chosen. So, you know, we can see here through this chart the, the richness, the prophetic importance of Yahweh's days of worship. And this is, again, a big one, because this is not only rich in meaning and prophetic importance, historic importance, but it's also one of, again, that the three pilgrimage feasts we find within the Word. So as we see here, it's believed historically that the law was given, the Torah was given on this day, that Moses received the Torah on this day. And we'll see evidence for this in Scripture as we go on. From the New Testament, we also know prophetically that this feast foreshadows the outpouring of Yahweh's Spirit. Now, the Spirit was already here. Elder Allen spoke about that yesterday. The Spirit was here. But the outpouring had not occurred yet. So that was something distinct, something very special. And again, that was the outpouring of that Spirit, as we'll see as we go through this message. So this feast is important from both a historic and prophetic standpoint. Now, before I delve into the meaning the historic and the prophetic meaning. I want to first delve into the command. You know, it's always important to go back to the beginning to understand what Yahweh says about these things. So let's do that. Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, 15 through 16, it says, And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days, and you shall offer a new Meat offering. Now, you know, I, I've always found it a little bit ironic because uh, it's not a meat offering, it's a grain offering. And uh, believe it or not, it's the only uh, bloodless offering we find within the Word, and yet they call it the meat offering. That is Old English. It really uh, should be a cereal offering or a grain offering is the more, I think, proper way of saying that. So from the beginning here, we find something very special, something unique about this day. Normally, Yahweh begins the feast days by giving us a day and a month, right? For example, he commands that we observe the Passover, and he says that we're to observe the Passover on the first day or the, the, the first month, 14th day. So he provides a day and a month. He follows this same pattern for all the other feasts except for this one. This one, as we see here, we're to count. Instead of providing a day and a month, it commands that we're to count seven complete Sabbaths or weeks 
from the time of the wave sheath. The wave sheath. So when was the wave sheath offered? I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. When was the wave sheath or the Omer offering offered in the Old Testament? Is offered on the morning after the Sabbath or on the Sunday that fell within unleavened bread. So that is when this day was offered. Now, how do we know this? Well, for one, the Hebrew for Sabbath here in the passage referred to the wave sheaf is the Shabbat. It almost always refers to the weekly Sabbath. There's one exception, and that exception is to the Day of Atonement. Believe it or not, the only feast day called a Shabbat within the Hebrew is Day of Atonement. All the others have a different name. And I believe that that is done because there is a difference between those days. But atonement is very special, and like the Sabbath, it is a very restrictive day, and I think that's why Yahweh uses Shabbat in reference to the Sabbath along with the Day of Atonement. Now, the other thing that throws people is this phrase, Mar after the Sabbath, Mar after the Sabbath, or this phrase simply means the day after the Sabbath. That's all it's saying, and the day after the Sabbath for us is Sunday, or it's the first day of the week, so that's why we again do this on the Sunday with an unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread commemorated the barley harvest, and the wave sheaf represented the first fruits of that harvest. So it only makes sense that we would offer the wave sheaf during the feast. You wouldn't offer the wave sheaf outside of the feast because, again, that wave sheaf is what this feast commemorated within the word. So for these reasons, again, the wave sheaf was always offered on the Sunday or more after the Sabbath during unleavened bread. So from that day of the wave sheaf, Yahweh commands us, again, to count seven complete weeks. So that's 49 days. And then he says that we're going to add a 50th day. Now, that 50th day is the Feast of Weeks or the day of Pentecost. And again, that is where Pentecost derives from, 50, within the Greek, based on this count. Now, notice what Yahweh commands in verse 16. It says, on this day, he commanded Israel to offer new Grain offering. So what type of grain are we talking about here? You know, as Yahweh's people, it's important that we understand a few things about the agriculture. Have you ever seen the strong connection with agriculture in Scripture? And not just from an Old Testament standpoint, even from a New Testament. It's amazing. So many of Yahshua's parables use what? So many of Yahshua's parables use agriculture to convey the point. You see, agriculture was a very big deal for the Israelites of old. It's a very big deal for the New Testament. It should be a very big deal for us to understand how these things worked. Because, again, everything hinges on this understanding of agriculture. Even today, you know, we determine the calendar by the agriculture, by the barley. You have to understand how all of that works. Now, in verse 17, we find that Yahweh commanded Israel on this day to make two loaves of bread. And I want to read that, Leviticus 23, verse 17. It says, You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth of deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven, it says. They are the first fruits unto Yahweh. So what do we notice here about these two loaves of bread? Number one, we knew they, they, they were wheat because this is what separates this feast from the previous. The previous was barley. This is wheat. Wheat offering. So what do we see here? Or we see both loaves were commanded to use leavening or yeast. Now this is something very unique. This is something very different. Because this is the only offering that required 
that mandated leavening or yeast. Everything else was unleavened. But not here. Yahweh said to use leavening during this, during this, or with this sacrifice, or with this offering. So why do you suppose he did this? Why do you suppose that with the wave sheaf and the offerings during that time that it was unleavened? And now during this feast, it is leavening, or it is leavened, it is with yeast. Well, here, here's what we find from Colin Delich. It says, the uh, loaves, and I believe I have this on the slide here, the loaves differed from all the other meat offerings, and that should be grain offerings, being made of leavened dough, because in them their daily bread was offered to Yahweh, who had blessed the harvest as a thank offering for his blessing. It simply expresses the idea that they were to be loaves made for, their daily, for the daily food of a household and not prepared exclusively for holy purposes. You see, it was something that they ate all the time. It was something that was relevant to them all the time. We see something similar to, from the uh, Jameson, Foss, and Brown commentary. It says, the loaves used as a Passover were unleavened, or we know that. It says, those presented at Pentecost were leavened, a difference which is thus accounted for, that the one was a memorial of the bread hastily prepared at their departure, and of course that was Passover, while the other was a tribute of gratitude to Yahweh for their daily food. You see, it's this concept that is something they would cook with all the time, just like us. How often do we eat unleavened bread? Or not often. Normally, for most of us, it's once a year, and it's for seven days. Most of the time, we like that leavened bread. So did Israel. So that's, I believe, why we see the difference here. The main reason for leavening here was to simply show, number one, is a sign of gratitude. Number two, it was a way to show the appreciation for Yahweh's daily provision by something we would eat daily in common. You know, we find another term here, first fruits. First fruits. Real important term we find in Scripture. So this word is used in reference to Yahshua the Messiah and to the elect, to those called and chosen of Almighty Yahweh. So where do we see it? Or We see an example of this in reference to the Messiah in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, and also verse 23 in reference to his resurrection. Now, in this case, it's not Pentecost, though, right? In this case, it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is when he was resurrected, and this is when that first fruits offering took place. Now, we also see this again used in reference to those called and chosen, to the elect, to the saints. For example, I want to read two references here. One is uh, James 1.18, and the other is Revelation 14, verse 4. So here's what we find from James chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Of his own will begat, and that literally means to breed forth or to generate. He, us, with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. First fruits of his creation. This is speaking about the called and chosen. And we see in Revelation 14, verse 4, it says, These are they which were not defiled with women. And this is simply, by the way, an expression that they were not polluted, that they, they, they were righteous. It's not physically they were not defiled, but they were righteous. For they are virgins. Virgins. They are righteous before Yahweh. Symbolic. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits 
first fruits. So you see, they were redeemed. Again, the called and chosen of Almighty Yahweh. Their first fruits, it says, unto Elohim, into the Lamb. So based on this, what do we find out about first fruits? So number one, we know that the first fruits, in reference to mankind, are those begotten or chosen. We also know that the first fruits are those that keep the commandments of Yahweh and the faith of Yahshua. We see that in Revelation 14, 12, and also 12, verse 17. These are also those who remain faithful to the one they worshipped through trial and tribulation. These are those who will be resurrected at Yahshua's coming when he returns to establish his kingdom here on earth, which, by the way, is depicted through Yom Teruah that has not occurred yet. But the calling out has occurred. The first fruits has occurred. You see, we are called out. And we look forward to that resurrection is depicted through Yom Teruah. So we see here that Pentecost represents a calling out of those who will be found worthy at Yahshua's return when he comes to gather the elect and to establish his father's kingdom here on earth. Well, let's go back now, and I want to continue with Leviticus 23 and verse 21. It says there, and you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. And you shall do no servile work, it says, therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So we see here that Yahweh calls this day a holy convocation. Real important. Holy convocation. This phrase comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikra. Kodesh Mikra. And it simply means a holy or sacred meeting. That's what he's referring to when he says holy convocation. He is saying, I have set this time apart for you to come together to worship me. That's what this phrase conveys. So on this day, we're commanded to come together to worship him. Now, we also see that on this day that we're to abstain from work. It says here specifically servile work. Now, the word servile here is from the Hebrew of bodot. It means work of any kind. So again, we're to avoid mundane work. This day is for the communal worship of our Father, not working, not focused on the world, but coming out of the world and focused on Him. That is what we're to do during this time. Well, I want to move on now and talk about what this day represents, both historically, prophetically. We've already touched on it. We know what it is. But I want to see in Scripture, show you in Scripture, what this day represents historically, what occurred, and also prophetically. So let's talk about the, the um, historic significance. And that's, again, according to many, this was when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. The Jews believe this, and I believe Scripture indicates this. We actually see evidence in Exodus 19, verse 1. Exodus 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. You know, it's important that we understand the timing of this passage. The timing. We see here that Israel was in the wilderness when? It says here that Israel was in the wilderness in the third month. In the third month, Israel was in Sinai. Now, even though Yahweh doesn't provide a, a, a month and a day or a specific date for Pentecost, we know by the math that it falls within the third month. We know that. 
it falls within the third month. So we know chronologically that this passage was right before Moses went up into Mount Sinai to receive the law, and we know that it was within the month of Shaviot, or the month of Pentecost. Now, again, I realize here it doesn't say that Moses was on Mount Sinai the day of Pentecost receiving the law, but based on the evidence, it makes a lot of sense to me. So why do I say this? Number one, as I've already pointed out, we see in this passage that Israel was in Sinai, was there in the third month. So we know that they were in the right location when Moses received the law. Number two, as I've already mentioned, the Jews believe this to be true. The Jews, according to Jewish tradition, that the law was given on Shaviot. And number three, and this is a real important one, real important one. Almost every major event in Scripture is tied to a feast day. You know, it'd be hard to find a major event not tied somehow to a feast day. Every event. Again, for example, the Passover depicted the death of the firstborn and the redemption of Israel. Major, major event, historically speaking. And it was, again, depicted through a day of worship, through a day that Yahweh set aside. You know, with this in mind, consider what is more important from an Old Testament standpoint than the giving of the Torah, than the giving of the law. It doesn't make sense to me that this would have been just done on any day. This is too important. And I believe Yahweh used this day to remember this from a historical standpoint. So for me, it only makes sense based on the evidence that the law was given on this day. Now there's a last reason, another connection I think we can make with this, and that is a connection to the New Testament fulfillment we find for this, for this historic event. You know, as we know, in the New Testament, this day prophetically points to the outpouring of Yahweh's Holy Spirit, as I believe we see a connection then with the law. Now since I'll explain that further in just a moment, but we see this in Acts 2. Acts 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, in other words, they had arrived. That's all it's saying. They had arrived. They were all with one accord in one place. You see, they were in unity. That's, that's the message. They were in unison at this time. It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. Now, this is the manifestation of Yahweh's Holy Spirit, of his Ruach HaKodesh. It says that, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in this passage, we find that the people were gathered when? The people were gathered on the day of Pentecost. You know, based on this, we find that believers in the New Testament, they were still observing the Feast of Weeks. They were still observing Shaviot long after Yahshua's death. All you have to do, by the way, is read the Bible. You know, some people ask, why do you believe that? Or, you know, you would too if you simply read the Bible. Because it's there. It is not hard to find. They were doing this, and this was after Yahshua's resurrection. So again, contrary to popular belief, the feast days were still being observed in the New Testament, and we know that. You know, we see this also true, though, in the millennium, in the kingdom to come. We see that the Sabbath and the feast days will be observed during this time. Don't believe me. Look it up. Isaiah 66, 23, prophetic passage. Ezekiel 45 through 46, prophetic passage, showing that the Sabbath 
showing that Passover, showing that unleavened bread, a big one, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, all showing prophetically that these days will be observed in the coming kingdom. They were observed in the old. They were observed in the new. And they will be observed into the future with the millennium. Now, on this day, we find that two things happened. So in Acts 2, we see that two things occurred. Number one, Yahweh poured out his spirit, his ruach, or his pneuma. Pneuma is Greek, on those who were gathered. Number two, through Yahweh's spirit, those there spoke in tongues. They spoke in tongues. I, I want to focus for a few moments on this outpouring, and then we'll talk about the tongues, the gift of tongues. Or this was, again, the prophetic fulfillment for the day of Pentecost, tongue, or the, uh, the, the outpouring of the Spirit. So how does this tie into the Old Testament fulfillment? I mentioned that there's a connection there, the giving of the law. Well, you know, there's a relationship, I believe, between the law and the Holy Spirit. There's a connection. There's an association between the law, the Torah, and Yahweh's Ruach HaKodesh. Through the law, we receive the knowledge of Yahweh's morality. His code of ethics, right and wrong. Through the Spirit, we receive the wisdom and ability to rightly apply that knowledge. You see the connection? You see how they're associated? They're not diametrically opposed, as so many believe. No, they're connected with one another. The law and Holy Spirit complement. They complete one another. What Yahweh began in the old, he finished in the new. He gave the Torah in the old And he finished that concept by the granting, by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Through the law, we receive again the knowledge of Yahweh's word. Through the Spirit, we receive the wisdom and the ability to rightly apply that. And we also see here that through the outpouring of the Spirit, that those gathered received a gift. And this gift was the gift of tongues. So what is the gift of tongues? You know, we've, most of us, when we, think of tongues, we probably think of the charismatic tongue that we see in many Pentecostal circles. Well, that's not the gift we find in Scripture. Yahweh's gift is not confusion. That's confusion. The gift of tongues is the ability to supernaturally speak or hear in another language. That is the meaning of tongues. That is what it means to speak in tongues or to hear in tongues. The word tongue is from the Greek glossa. According to Strong's, it literally means, quote, a language, especially one naturally unacquired. And that's exactly what we see here. This wasn't because of their own intellect. This wasn't because they spent hundreds of hours learning a language. No, this was Yahweh pouring out his spirit, giving them the ability immediately to hear and speak in different languages. Now, we find something similar with Thayer's that says this. This is a language, the language or dialect used by particular people, distinct from that of other nations. So we find the gloss of number one is a known language or dialect. It is a known language or dialect. Such an important point. Number two, some cases, in some cases, it refers to a language being supernaturally acquired, as we see here. Again, these people did not know the languages. They naturally could not understand the languages. But through Yahweh pouring out his spirit, those gathered, they understood one another. They understood one another. And that is the purpose of tongues. 
So in this example, we find that those gathered require the gift to, to hear and understand. Now, starting in verse 5, we find the impact of this gift. I'm going to read, not, not all at once, but this entire account. I want to begin with verse 5 through 13. It says, There and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of all every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. So notice here, it's almost as if they could hear, not necessarily speak. They could hear one another in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in his own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and of Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and in parts of Libya, uh, Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers in Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of Elohim. And they were all amazed. They were astounded at this point. And were in doubt. You see, they were now confused. They did not understand what was occurring. Saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking, said these men are full of new wine. You know, it's important that we notice here that there were both the Jews and proselytes gathered to observe this feast. Proselytes are Jewish converts. But they were gathered all throughout the Middle East, some even as far as Rome. Matter of fact, here's a map. I shared this last year. Here's a map showing those nations present at Pentecost and how far some came. Notice that. Notice Rome. Notice Rome. Now, as a crow flies, Rome is about 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. You know, as we know in Scripture, and as I've already mentioned, Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks, is a pilgrimage feast. So these people came and they pilgrimaged to observe Yahweh's feast. I know for many, though, this isn't possible, but you know, when we can, we should. We should come during this feast to gather, as Yahweh says, within his word. So from this example, we find that, number one, the feasts are not only for Jews, because, again, we find many, many nations, 15 nations gathered here, so many nations and many peoples besides Jews. And number two, we see here that some people traveled quite far. And think about it. Think about traveling from Rome during those days. You couldn't get on a plane and, and travel four, five, six hours and be here. Now, it, didn't, it wasn't that easy. You'd, I mean, it took long durations of time to travel. Hardship. But they did it. They did it to honor and to worship Yahweh as we find within the word. So again, we see that many, many traveled quite far to be there. We also see here that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that everyone could hear, hear and speak in another language. Again, I think in this gives more hear than speak. You know, we're going to find later that this gift greatly impacted the growth of the early assembly. It was really the catalyst. It was the fire that ignited the growth during this time. You know, in verses 11 through 13, we find that the people were confused. They were confused. They did not understand the meaning of this gift. They did not understand what was occurring. Some believed it was evidence of Yahweh's power. Others were completely baffled 
and still others believe that it was simply the influence of wine. They did not understand what was occurring. You see, Yahweh had not explained this occurrence yet. But Peter would. Peter will explain what this means. He will explain the impact, and he will explain this in a way that they understood. And we see that in starting in verse 14. 2 verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, so all of them were there. It's another important thing we see there. All twelve were there. It says, Lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. What he's saying here is listen. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to my message. For these are not drunkard or drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It was early in the morning. He's saying it's too early for that. Now, that's not the case here. He says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days that Yahweh will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit. So this is a prophecy. This was a fulfillment of something promised long before. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, in signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Some of this, I believe, is prophetic yet, has not occurred yet. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Heavenly signs, celestial signs. Before this, that great and notable day of Yahweh come. The great notable day. This is a reference to Yahshua's coming. To the day of Yahweh. Yahshua's coming to the second coming. It says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. And by the way, we know it's a reference to Yahweh. You know, some will say, No, no, the Greek doesn't say that. The Hebrew does. And this is from the, the Hebrew because it's taken from Joel. So we know from the Hebrew when, when he was speaking this prophecy that the Hebrew would have said Yahweh. Yahweh, such an important point there to understand. So Peter explains here, the manifestation of this gift was not the result of wine or drunkenness. No, he explains that this is the power of the Holy Spirit, as prophesied long before by the prophet Joel. He quotes Joel's prophecy throughout. He talks about how Yahweh's word would be poured out upon both men and women. And how they would prophesy, how they would see visions, and how they would dream dreams. You know, referring to the prophet Joel, Peter said that all these things would occur through Yahweh's spirit. And that they would happen in the last days. In the last days. You know, I believe that the last days began in Acts 2. And extends through our day and through the return of Yahshua the Messiah. You have the last days. Again, this is that duration of time between Pentecost, Acts 2, and Yahshua's coming. And then you have the day of Yahweh, and that's specifically to the day of Yahshua's return. Two different times, as we see historically. You know, remember that a, a thousand years is like a day to Yahweh. A thousand years. This is two days to Yahweh. You know, like Peter, we too are living in the last days before the coming of Yahshua's Savior. 
And as we get closer to his return, I believe that we're going to see greater manifestations than what we saw, see here in Acts 2. I think we're going to see Yahweh's Spirit pour out in a great and mighty way as we get closer to Yahshua's coming. Have you ever noticed that the manifestation of the Spirit and how it comes and goes during certain parts within history? It was, it was powerful when Yahshua was here. And it sort of waned after he died where I believe we're going to see an uptick, that we're going to see this, this power of return right before the return of Yahshua the Messiah. And the signs and the prophecies that we find within this book and within the prophecy of Joel will come to pass in even greater ways. So even though the Great Tribulation is going to be a scary time for many, and it will be, you know, Yahshua said that the Great Tribulation, there's never going to be a time like it or ever will be like it again. It is going to be a very bad time on this earth. But I also believe that the Great Tribulation is going to be an exciting time for many of us who have the opportunity to see the full manifestation of Yahweh's Spirit and the prophetic promise as we find here through the prophet Joel. So a very exciting time along with a scary time as we see with for many. Now, I want to point out one more thing here in verse 21. Verse 21, Peter, again quoting Joel, says, Those who call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the name of our Father in heaven. Some people have no regard for it. Some people see no relevance with it. Some people why ask why do we even use it. Or we use it because it's important. We use it because of what it says right here. Because those who call upon Yahweh's name will be saved. You know, we see this expression in other places as well. You know, we also see in Isaiah 52 verse 6, it says there that his people will know his name his people will know his name. It says, my people will know my name. And that's not just authority, as some believe. That's just not character, as some try to explain. No, that's his name, that we will know his name. You know, we also see in Revelation 14.1 that the saints are sealed uh, with his name. The uh, scripture prophesies, and it says that before Yahweh pours out his plagues upon this earth, that he's going to tell the angels to seal the servants prior to him again unleashing his plagues. The seal will be a seal of protection. Again, such an important, critical truth. The name of our creator that's not to be ignored. It's central to his worship. Now, in verse 29, Peter changes focus. So let's read about this. He focuses now on the resurrection. It says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both the dead and buried in the sepulchers with us unto this day. So he verifies David hasn't ascended to heaven, as so many believe. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that Elohim hath had sworn and with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne. So you see, this is a prophetic promise. That's what it's saying. This is a prophetic promise that will happen, that will occur. This is he seeing his this before spake of the resurrection of Messiah, that his soul was not left in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Yahshua had Yahweh raised up. So you see the Father raised up the Son. Whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of Elohim exalted, and having received of the Father the promise. Now listen, listen. It says that he received the promise. The promise of what? The promise of the Holy Spirit. He hath shed forth this, which you now see 
and hear. So in this passage, we find several truths. To begin with, we see here that David was a prophet. How many here realized that King David was a prophet? He wasn't just a king. He wasn't a role model only. He was a prophet of Yahweh. We find here that part of David's prophecy included the death and resurrection of our Savior. He prophesied that Yahshua's body would not see corruption in the grave, referring again to the resurrection. So David prophesied that Yahshua, you know, David, he was a type of Yahshua in many ways. And he prophesies here that Yahshua would not see corruption in the grave. In other words, again, he would be resurrected. I want to focus for just a few moments on verse 33. We find there that the Messiah was resurrected, that he received a gift. And that gift was the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find here that when the Messiah was resurrected, he received this gift to impart upon those who would follow him. And that's precisely what we find here in this passage. We see here that the gift was the promise of Yahweh's Holy Spirit. You know, remember that Yahshua said that he had to depart, right, before the Comforter could come. And we know that the Comforter is a reference to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So Yahshua could, had to go prior to the Holy Spirit coming. But we find here even more truth, and that is that this was a gift, that this was a gift he received to impart upon us, impart upon those who are called and chosen. Now, beginning in verse 36, we find the culmination of all this, what happened as a result. Acts 2, 36 through 41 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. You know, it's funny. It doesn't say, therefore, let the uh, church know. We don't see that, do we? No, because you, you see this promise to Israel never changed. So many people, they have this replacement theology concept branded in their, in their mind. Well, that's not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is the promise was Hebraic in the old, and the promise is Hebraic now. Israel's never been removed. We've been grafted in. goes on to say that Elohim hath made that same Yahshua, whom you have impelled, both master and Messiah, sovereign and Messiah. Now when they heard this, and you can only imagine at this point, you know, realizing what you did. You know, you are the one guilty. You are the one at fault for the death of Messiah. You were there. You allowed it. Perhaps you even participated with it, calling for his death. They heard this. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You know, I'm sure at this point they they were just in agony, not knowing what to do, how to respond. So then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Yahshua Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the first time we see this, this formula, this baptismal formula into the singular name of the Messiah for the remission of sins and for the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off. You know, that, that's, that's us, right? We're far off. You see, this wasn't for just this day, but for all days moving ahead. It says, even as many as Yahweh our Elohim shall call. And with many words did he testify and exhort, 
saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So after all the signs and wonders, and after Peter's message, we see here that those that gathered were pricked in their hearts for the death of the Messiah. The people asked, what shall we do? They were distraught, again, realizing for the first time the mistake they had made. They understood the enormity of their actions. They knew that they were guilty of the death of the Son of Yahweh. And again, they were distraught. They did not know how to respond. So what does Peter say here? He told them to, number one, repent. Repent is to think differently, is to act differently. It's not a verbal remorse. It's not saying, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. That's being remorseful. Repentance is thinking, acting, behaving differently. It's a new way of life. You know, Scripture says that when we're, when we're immersed, that we are to walk in newness of life. That means to walk in a different way, not in the old way, but no, according to Yahweh's way. That is the difference. So we find here that they were baptized into the name of Yahshua the Messiah, and they repented, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the end, we find here that about 3,000 people were immersed. Can you imagine 3,000 people being immersed in one day? You know, I've had the opportunity to maybe see 30. Maybe 30 is the most I've seen in one day during a feast. And that was a great thing to see. Maybe it was more than 30. It was quite a few. Quite a few. We had two lines and multiple. I mean, it, was, it was quite a thing to see. But 3,000 people, this is something altogether different. And I believe that Yahweh used this day as a flame that would ignite the growth of the early assembly the early New Testament assembly, that this was that moment that the calling began, that grew and motivated that, that action of growth with, with the assembly. If not for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues, Peter's dynamic message, maybe none of this would have happened. There would have been no 3,000 people immersed. There would have been, there would have been no explosion of the early assembly. No, none of that would have happened. You know, I often said that all of Yahweh's gifts are done for a reason, and all of them have a purpose. And I believe the gift in the, of tongues, the outpouring of the Spirit, was for this purpose. It was to ignite and grow the early assembly, moving forward or looking toward the resurrection to come, again, being depicted through Yom Teruah. So this was a calling out for the future resurrection. And that's really what this day is. It is a calling out. It is, the, it is the explosion of what will be at the resurrection. You know, as he called Israel out in the Old Testament, he's doing the same thing now in the New. And what's amazing is that we see the same pattern in both Old and New Testaments. You know, for example, here's what, we, here's what it says in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, it says... Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar, but really, peculiar is his possession. It's important. It's not peculiar as an odd, although we are kind of odd to the world. I think it does fit in many ways. 
It certainly doesn't mean peculiar, though, in that sense. So treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So before we delve into the, the meaning here, I want to point out something. I want to point out something important. We find here that the promise is conditional. Yahweh said in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice, if. It's a conditional promise. And that conditional promise is the same today. You know, some people believe all I need to do is to confess and do nothing more. He's going to do it all for me. Well, that's not what we find in Scripture. Scripture shows us that when we commit to him, that we have then an obligation to follow him. And following him is simply doing his will. It's not complicated. You know, so many people, they say, you obey those commandments? Don't you know that's part of legalism? Or I'm sorry, I don't understand why it's so negative to obey the one we worship. Show me where we're wrong with that. Show me in Scripture where it's a bad thing to obey the one that will give us everlasting life in the end. I don't see that. And I don't see the oppression with that. I don't see why that's a negative thing. So again, it's a conditional promise that the blessings we find in this passage were based and predicated upon obeying our Father in heaven. You know, Scripture provides two key, two key concepts I want to I speak about for just a moment. Number one, Yahweh has given mankind free will. I'm a big proponent of free will. You know, some people buy into this, this, um, this concept of predestination. And Scripture does speak about being predestined, but only in the calling, not in the, not in the end. Whether we are called, whether we are chosen, and whether we are deemed worthy has nothing to do with predestination. It has everything to do with obedience and following him. You know, in the Old Testament, Yahweh told Israel that I've set before you life and death, blessings and the curse, you choose. Yahweh doesn't change. The same father that, that was in the old is the same father in the new. Same conditional promise in the old is the same one we find in the new. He's giving us the same opportunity, saying, look, I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity for life. But you need to obey me. You need to do it my way. You see, that's the way it works with him. It's not our way. So many people, too many people believe and have this notion that we can worship Yahweh in our own way, and it doesn't matter. Well, that's not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that we're, we're, we're to worship Yahweh in his way, not our way. Number two, if we're going to receive life within his kingdom, we must obey him. Very simple concept. You know, Revelation 20, verse 12, it says there that we're going to be judged based on our works. It doesn't say we're going to be judged based on how great our faith was. It doesn't say that we're going to be judged based on how great his grace was. No, it says we're going to be judged based on our works, how we lived, how we worked, and what we did in this life. You know, certainly grace is important, but it does not give us a license to ignore his word or to break his commandments. Now, what are the promises we find here? What do we see? Well, Yahweh promised Israel of old, by the way, that they would be a treasure, special treasure above all people and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, if Israel would have simply obeyed him, if they would have kept the course, 
they would have received the blessings that we find here. But as we know, historically, this did not occur. Israel was like any other nation, and in many ways worse than many other nations. They rebelled against Yahweh. And because of that, Yahweh gave them over to the Babylonians and to the Assyrians because they would not comply to his will. But again, as we find here, that we must comply to his will. Now, it's amazing as we see this same promise, for the most part, the same promise in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, 5 and 9 through 10. So it says, You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to, uh, to Elohim by Yahshua Messiah. Now listen to what it says here. This is starting verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen a generation. Does that sound familiar? Should. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Same word. Same phrase. Same promise. A peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We show forth his praises how? We show forth his praises when we comply to his will. We show forth his praises when we do it his way. We show forth his praises when we obey his word. That is how we show forth his praises, when we follow him and not our own way. It says, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of Elohim, which had not, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Peter says here that we're a royal priesthood, chosen generation, a holy nation, special, special unto Yahweh, the one we worship. You know, these are the same promises we find in the Old Testament. These are the same promises that Yahweh gave to the Israelites of old. Again, this day marks the giving of the law of Sinai, which solidified Israel as a chosen people and as a nation. I want to pause, and I want you to think about this for just a moment. A nation cannot exist without law, right? For a nation to be a nation, they must have a set of rules, laws. When did they receive that law? They received it on Pentecost. That's not to say the law did not exist prior to that, but they received the codified commandments on Pentecost. I believe that's an important point. We also know that on this day, again, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred in Acts 2, which ignited the growth of the New Testament assembly. So in essence, here's how I see it. Pentecost marks the birth of both Israel as a nation with a set of laws and the New Testament assembly through the giving of the Holy, or the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a birth. It's, it's a beginning through Pentecost. I believe that's where the significance it is. It is the calling out of the first fruits to someday be found worthy of that resurrection, which again is depicted through Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets in the fall. You know, we see here the promises that awaits the called and chosen of Almighty Yahweh. As believers in the Messiah, this is our hope. Nothing should mean more to us than the truth, than the calling out, than the promise of redemption, the promise of everlasting life, and the promise of the resurrection at Yahshua's return. In all of us here, and all of us and all of those listening, 
We all have the same opportunity. We all have the same opportunity. Yahweh is a fair and benevolent mighty one. He has given us all the same hope. He's given us all the same promise. All we need to do to achieve this promise is to follow him.